Welcome to Inspirational Leadership. My name is Kristen Harcourt and I'm your host. I'm an executive coach and professional speaker. And I created this show because I'm passionate about humanizing the workplace and transforming leaders. And I truly believe to transform leaders that really starts with self-leadership and helping leaders to become more aware of how they're showing up to improve their emotional intelligence, to prove their improve their mindfulness and really create work environments where everyone can work together to create their best work. And today we have a special guest that is going to have a lot to share on this topic. And I'm excited to introduce you to Ron Carucci. Ron is the owner and managing partner at Navalence. He is a writer. He's an author. He's a two times TEDx speaker. He is also a researcher and he has written eight books and he specializes in organization transformation. Welcome to the show, Ron. Kristen, such a delight to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Ron. And, you know, I think a great starting point is I I love to give our audience an opportunity to get to know you a little bit better in your story. And when I listen to your TED Talks, I hear a lot of passion, a lot of passion around this topic. So talk to me a little bit around your story and your journey and what got you to the work you're currently doing right now. Uh, well, so uh, we can go back a lot of years, um, but I think uh, I'll, I'll spare the gory details for your listeners by simply saying that I've always been organ- fascinated by human endeavor, by how people can come together at scale and accomplish things that you can't accomplish on your own. And so I've, I've loved the notion that, you know, how do you organize people's work in a way that makes them feel part of a bigger story, that makes their contribution multiplied. Um, I learned early on in my career by, by working for several large companies that, um, you know, ancient wisdom says you can't be a prophet in your own land. So um, sometimes my indelicate or impolitic truth-telling inside a company got me in trouble, but I also learned that that got me paid very handsomely and rewarded for that outside a company. So I, I learned probably, you know, 25 years ago that if I'm going to live out my passions for organizations, it's probably going to be by not being a part of one uh, and have to stay outside of them in order to um, help them become their best, their best selves and the people in them as well. And so I spent a number of years with, with a big consulting firm in UD, and then about 16 years ago, left that firm with some friends of mine to start Navalent, uh, where we spend our days traipsing the hallways of organizations, accompanying leaders in all kinds of messy transformational journeys to help them and the people they serve um, thrive. Wonderful, wonderful. And I think one of the important pieces that you uh, bring up in in your TED Talk and many of the books and articles that you've written for HBR as well, is this whole notion of power. And I think sometimes power can be misunderstood. And so talk to me a little bit around how you find power can sometimes be misunderstood. And what does it look like to really use powerful in in a in a power, I was going to say use power in a powerful way, but how how you can really use power in a meaningful way to make positive change happen? So I think the, one of the biggest surprises in the research for the book, you mentioned rising to power. Uh, when we isolated the dimension of power, it was a 10-year longitudinal study that uh, incorporated t- the inputs of 2,700 leaders. We also isolated about 100 leaders in mid-ascent in slow motion to sort of watch them to find out, you know, going into that research, we knew that 50 to 60% of those leaders, as they assume broader responsibilities, fail in the first 18 months. And we wanted to understand why was that okay and why does it keep happening and why can't we prevent that? 
<clears throat> when we isolated the dimension of power, our expectation was that we would find people, the classic headline stories of abuse of power, the Harvey Weinsteins, the, you know, Theranos, people who were self-indulgent with their power and, and used it for self-interest. Um, and while we did find those, that was by far not the greatest abuse of power at all. What we were very surprised to learn was by far uh, the greatest abuse of power was the abandonment of it. People too uncomfortable, people too fearful, people too anxious to use the power that comes with the role they've assumed. And so they set it down in favor of winning popularity or, or purchasing loyalty or currying favor and doing other versions because the risk of using that power for a greater good and alienating some people in the process, which is what your job is, um, was too great for them. And so what surprised us was people not really appreciating the resource that the power they have is and where that power comes from. So in the research, we found that there, there are actually three sources of power we all have available to us. One is certainly our positional power, but that doesn't have to mean a high rank or in a place in a hierarchy. Our positional power could be one of expertise. Our positional power could be one of broad influence. Our positional power can be a parent, be one of being a parent. But it gives us a, a formal level of authority um, bestowed upon us either by our accomplishments or by, by organizations to, to make change happen, to right wrongs, to, to spot and rectify injustices. We also have informational power. So our knowledge base used to be that hoarding information made you powerful, but information is ubiquitous these days. So today, the, your power comes from interpreting the information by having an insight or a keen analysis of that information which can change people's minds, which can offer impact in new ways to, to broaden people's perspectives. And the last and really important source of power is our relationships, the connections we have to other people. Our network is an incredible resource. And most people, the research says, grossly underestimate how far reaching their relationships go. They, they dramatically um, underappreciate um, how far reaching their influence could be if they actually looked at the, the map of stakeholders that they regularly interact with. But those relationships are an opportunity to, to impact others on their journeys, to influence people as they want to become the best version of themselves, to help their story uh, advance. And so there are three wide playgrounds of, of where we can have impact in the world. We just have to want to have, take on the responsibility of using that power for that greater good. Mm-hmm. And I think what you've just spoken to there um, is, is a big piece of what it looks like to also have some self-awareness and emotional <clears throat> intelligence around what does it look like to be with some of the discomfort, for example, as a leader, when you make a decision and not everybody's going to like it, because as you just pointed out, to be a leader is to make difficult decisions. And I, I like what you had talked about in one of the articles, too, is that um, part of the saying no is dealing with the dysfunction of the people who feel disappointed that you didn't say yes to them. So what are some of those things, if you think about tactically, that leaders can start to think about doing? from a personal development perspective <clears throat> to feel more comfortable in terms of embracing power and using it in that way? Well, a couple of realities that many leaders are not acclimatized to as they ascend. One is the fact that your life is now in the jumbotron, right? There are versions of you being concocted. There are, you are going to be quoted as incontrovertibly, incontrovertibly having said things you never said. Um, you are going to be concocted. You're going to have a bull, bullhorn strapped to your mouth 24-7. Um, and there's going to be this larger than life version of you. You're going to have to learn to withstand how many narratives are out there. 
And rather than sort of being buffeted by those narratives and being paralyzed by them, you can learn to influence them. You can never control them. But by being more your authentic self, by being vulnerable, by not, by not hiding behind a veneer or some concocted version of you, you give people less reason to, to chat, right? It's people are more prone to concoct narratives about you in the absence of information or in the absence of conflicting information where you behaved in conflicting ways in one setting versus another. So learning to be consistent, learning to understand how are my messages being metabolized? How are people uh, experiencing my choice making or my, my messages or my, um, my direction? By getting feedback, by going around and asking people those questions directly. You, you, you can certainly use an, an anonymous source of feedback if that's comfortable for you, but eventually you want people to be freely comfortable to come to you and say whatever they need to say. Um, you want to de-risk telling you the truth. You don't want to make people have to find courage to speak up to you. Because the minute it means courage, is what they're telling you is that you're not safe. And so the way you make yourself safe, to be honest with, is by being vulnerable, by owning, by owning your own shortfalls before they have to, by getting involved at the inevitable dinner conversation around the table that night about you, by telling people what to talk about, giving people a reason to talk about you in a positive light. So it's, it's recognizing that there are multiple stories and narratives forming because of your leadership. That's just a part of the job. But you have to sort of shape those narratives by, being, by leading out loud, by proactively telling people what you're thinking. Let people teach people to decode you. Teach people to be able to predict accurately what kind of decision you'll make, what kind of, what kind of trade-off you're willing to make, how you'll respond to somebody's error or mistake, um, how you'll act appreciatively about someone's accomplishment. Teach them to be able to say, I know what's going to happen here. I've seen it before. Um, and when they can do that, you become safer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's really important with what you just said, even in terms of getting feedback, if that was something you previously weren't doing, the first time you start going out there and asking for feedback, people might not be very quick to give you that feedback, but maybe the second time, the third time, the fourth time, the fifth time, now that they recognize, oh, this isn't just an exercise. This isn't just lip service. He or she actually wants to hear what I have to say. Then they're more likely to have that level of trust to be able to give you the, the real authentic feedback, which is super helpful for that leader to be aware of. Especially if you do it and act upon it, right? And don't get defensive and don't get angry. Yes. Um, and how you solicit it matters. You know, if you do the classic proverbial, um, hey, any, anything I can do better as a leader, you're not going to get much. But if you say to somebody, look, I know sometimes I'm indecisive and I struggle with that. Tell me how that's affected you. Um, it's a little bit more credible. And so, because if, if, if you've gone first and acknowledged some of the shortfalls, it makes a, they're not going to worry that they're going to be bringing light-breaking news to you that you don't, you're not aware of. But rest assured, if you haven't acknowledged a shortfall that you have repeatedly um, displayed, people will assume you, you're just unaware. Right. Because either you are aware and don't care, that's one problem, or you're obtuse. Yeah. You know, but, but a problematic recurring behavior for a leader means that you know, your people are going home saying, how could, he, how could she not know? How can he not be aware of this? Um, it may be a behavior that has been resistant to change, right? So it may be that, that thing you do that you go, why do I keep doing that? Well, if that's the case and it's been resistant to coaching or technique to change it, that means, that means to tell you the origin of that behavior is far deeper than you think. And so for that, we do, with my clients, I do things called origin stories where I go digging a little bit deeper to understand, you, it's learned behavior. If you're blurting out in anger at certain triggers, if you're freezing up in certain settings where you're in front of 
people you're presenting to. If you're um, anxious in certain people's presences, if certain kind of people repeatedly bring out your worst self, there's a reason for that. It's not random. <clears throat> the answer to why do I keep doing that uh, is there. You, ha you have to find it because if you don't find it, you're never going to be able to change it. You, you, you're just using, trying to sort of harness the power of willpower to sort of control yourself, but that's really not the issue. So, you know, if there are certain rec re repetitive habits uh, that somehow you've been able, not able to conquer, you have to go digging deeper and look back in your, or your origin story to understand how did I learn that? Because you're, you're employing that behavior for some reason, right? It's meeting some need. It's serving some purpose um, that you believe is either protecting you or uh, uh, getting you seen and heard more or helping you be more influential. It may not be accomplishing those things, but somehow you concluded that it is. So unless you can unwind that narrative and find out where you learned it, you're never going to be able to rescript it to learn something new. Yeah, I do that so often with clients and I, I'm always encouraging them to have a journal and be writing down when they have a trigger and what happened and what was the situation so that we can start to look at those patterns. Because um, yeah. just as you said, it's uh, quite often it's conditioning and it's it's a behavior that they're using to keep themselves safe because they learned previously when this happens, this is what I do to keep myself safe. They're now the adult that doesn't need sometimes a lot of times those <laughs> behaviors that were learned many years ago. But sometimes it's actually I, I've had with some clients where they're just even taking a couple of deep breaths and letting themselves know I'm safe because the example that you just gave reminds me of, I, I have a couple of different clients that they notice with that. Um, I, I'm going to use bordering between assertive or aggressive personality type. That's very, very dominant, um, can bring them back to school when it was the compliant and I'm getting in trouble from the principal or I'm getting back in trouble from the teacher. It's so interesting how that can bring it back up. And then all sure. of a sudden, like you said, they're freezing, they're hiding they're um, the amygdala brain starts to show up and then they're getting into, um, running away or reacting and it's not them coming from a place yeah. of responding. So there can be so many rich, so much rich data. Um, what I also really like Ron, uh, that you said there, I think it's so incredibly powerful when you're asking feedback to acknowledge, Hey, I, I recognize this is one thing that I do sometimes. So I'm wondering how that impacts you or does it show up in a different way? So now all of a sudden you're giving that person permission. Okay. Yeah. Actually, I do notice that, or it might just help them to get a little bit clearer through the, you sharing that. Well, actually, no, it doesn't impact me in that way, but this is what does impact me in that way. So it's creating some more, um, some, some better dialogue and more trust right away by just showing up like that. Well, I think the, the, the platinum standard then becomes being able to say to your team, you know, if you can have that in a group conversation to say, look, I'm gonna, I want to work on this. I really need help, but, but there'll be moments where I'm blind to it. So would you please find some hand signal or find some, you know, throw a flag in the room or something. Give people a, a toy, give people a prop to warn me when you see me heading down that path to stop me. I would really appreciate that. Um, and then you're, you're telling people, wow, my development's in your hands. That means you can trust me with yours. Right. So when you have a, 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 um, entrusted your most vulnerable moments where, where you're unformed, where you're not at your best to the people who you're asking to trust with, your, with theirs, when you've gone first, you're that much more credible and they, they, they will be much more open. So it's actually your weaknesses that make you more credible as a leader to help them with theirs. Mm.
Yes, absolutely. Because that vulnerability piece is the more that you recognize that you're not perfect and human. It also gives them to permission to recognize I'm also not perfect and human, but I have opportunities to grow and and gaps that I can work through. Um, the, The name of the show, Ron, is Inspirational Leadership, and that's quite deliberately around, I think there's certain behaviors and characteristics we can continuously grow into to be a leader where um, where others want to collaborate. And I believe the best leaders actually create more leaders and are always looking for ways to coach and and see the best and bring out the best in the people that they support and work with. So from your perspective, um, you can go either angle. It could be, what are those behaviors that really drive you crazy? Um, Or it can be, you know, what are those behaviors that you really notice um, in all of the different organizations that you've worked with or leaders who actually perhaps really inspired you? Um, Those characteristics and behaviors that you really think need to be front and center. Well, I think, uh, so it's a timely question, Kristen. I've just finished my, my next book uh, called, uh, To Be Honest, Lead with the Power of Truth, Justice, and Purpose. Uh, and it's a book of exemplars. It's a book of the leaders I, most wanted, I would most want us all to emulate. So I'm, I'm sitting in this, basking in this treasure trove of, the, of such stories. So lots of things come to mind uh, when you ask the question. I think the first thing is um, warmth, um, hospitality. You know, when you're in this person's presence, you feel like an honored guest in their home. Uh, there's a sense that I matter to them. No matter who they are, no matter how big their position is, um, I'm, I instantly feel like an honored guest in their presence. Um, they're interested in me. They want to know about my work. Um, they're curious about who I am as a person and what, what matters to me outside of work. I, I, like I just arrived at their house for cocktails. So I think that's the first one. Um, the second one is um, uh, sort of uh, they, there's, there's an even keelness about them. It's not that they don't have emotion, not that they're, they're not human, but they're, um, there's a, something unflappable about, you know, they get, I mean, when you're a bigger executive leader, you, you're going to get, you're, you're a dartboard. You are just having rocks thrown at you all the time. Everything is your fault. Nothing that goes well is to your credit. And, and even in the face of that, they can withstand the suffering. You know, what most people don't tell you is that if you're going to aspire to executive leadership, you will suffer. Um, it is a painful role. It is a sacrificial role. People think all the perks, you know, the, the, the money and the bonuses, you know, make it a cushy job. It's not. It's anything but that. And so uh, and they're under, often unforgiving jobs. And so those leaders never wear their victimization on their sleeves. They somehow are gracious even in the face of their suffering. And I think the last one is uh, have, they have convictions. They're not afraid to state what they believe. They're not afraid to, they understand that leadership is the ability to disappoint people at a rate they can absorb. And they're not afraid to sort of be decisive and make hard calls and say no to even the best ideas so that the ideas you've already committed to can prevail. Um, they, they're, they're, they're a solid, confident presence that allows others to say, okay, I wanna follow this person. Um, so yeah, they're, so they're hospitable and welcoming. They're, um, gracious in the face of their own suffering and they are, uh, decisive and convicted. Mm -hmm. Mm, Yeah. I love when you were talking about that second one, it reminds me of, there's like this groundedness too, right? Where things just happen and they're not letting that it is what it is. And there's this, this groundedness that doesn't let it impact them the same way. I'm also curious, Ron, because you are writing on the book and I'm sure you're doing a lot of research and seeing different leaders out there. If there's a couple of leaders that jump out at you that our audience might recognize just in terms of 
corporate, political system, different areas that really stand out for you as individuals that embody those characteristics that you just shared? Gosh, there are so many. Uh, Indra Nui, former chairman and CEO at PepsiCo. Hubert um, Jolie from Best Buy. Uh, Ed Townley from Calvert Creamery. Um, Jacinda Ardern, uh, the prime minister in New Zealand. Um, uh, who else? Um, Ed, uh, uh, um, Vincent Stanley from Patagonia. Um, who else? Uh, gosh, I mean, there's just so many. Um, but yeah, those are, those are a handful to go Google to go read about people, all people you want to emulate. Yes. Yes. I, I think she's in New Zealand. The way she's handled the global pandemic has been such a poster child of yes. what it looks like to, to really be uh, an empathetic leader as well. Right. Really making everybody feel heard and understood. And transparent, very yes. transparent. Yes. Yeah. She is, she is a case study in the book. Yes. Oh, wonderful. I'm very excited to read this book, Ron. Um, when is the book going to be released? It'll be out in the spring. In the spring. Okay, wonderful. So so talk to me, Ron, getting into the, the organizations. And uh, I know you do a lot of work with um, doing transformation within organizations, sometimes working with m- mature companies. Um, such a big part of the show when I say humanizing the workplace is really creating positive cultures. And, and that means where they're mm-hmm. inclusive, where there's belonging, uh, where people are actually working together to go out in the world and, and make a big impact and, and be aligned with purpose and things like that. What do you notice with your work are some of the things that really get in the way of organizations making these leaps and bounds and and transforming their culture? Uh, Past success certainly isn't helpful um, because you have have this under low-grade sense of complacency and a low-grade sense of hubris uh, that have shrouded your successes. And so you you spend more time protecting those successes and creating the illusion of change, right? You sort of create this sense of, we'll talk about change, we'll talk about new behaviors, but we don't really want to let go of what has made us successful so far. Um, Secondly, I think um, people's people's conflation of hierarchy and status. You know, I think that we, we, rank has come to mean privilege in ways that it shouldn't. And so inequity is built into our systems. Um, before you can even get to ident- identity inequities, you have uh, role inequities. You know, in tech, tech, in tech companies, we privilege engineers. In brand companies, we privilege marketers. So you have inequities built into your system that make it difficult to advance and evolve because people want to protect those privileges. And the people who are feeling marginalized by them give up. So they don't, so some of your best talent doesn't quit and leave. Some of your best talent quits and stays. Um, Secondly, I think it's um, underestimating what change takes. Many big organizations to try and scale change do things like major events or campaigns or very superficial approaches to change. And they don't really actually design the change they need and sustain the implementation of that change. They sort of sprinkle pixie dust on people and hope that it sticks and that somehow change will be organic and amorphous or uh, osmotic. Um, And of course, that never works. And so then people decide you're not really serious. And so what you're doing is just, all you're doing is cultivating cynicism uh, with those efforts because nobody believes they're real and nobody believes they'll work. So those are a few. And what about some of the organizations that you have worked with? Is there a couple that come to mind that you want to highlight in terms of that before and after and that journey you took them on and how proud you were of where they got after you went on, on that transformational journey with them? Yeah. I mean, my, I mean, my clients are always inspiring to me. Um, 
you know, what we, we work with one large um, clean energy company who uh, was a combination of multiple small acquisitions that had to come together and completely reinvent themselves to become one integrated end-to-end -end energy company. And it was a grueling journey, but they really dug deep and worked hard. And it, we used the transformation process to, to integrate, to bring these four companies together into one cohesive role. And it was bumpy at the start, um, but they, they, they really prevailed and stayed the course. Um, that was inspiring to watch. Um, I have a, one large biopharma company uh, whose you know, global R&D function is tens of thousands of people um, who are really working hard to become more inclusive and more collaborative. And you know, scientists are not the most collaborative people. Um, and working to you know, really dismantle some of the fundamental fears people have of collaboration in those environments and uh, really unleashing the good heartedness of people who really do care about their patients. So, um, and I, lastly, I'd say um, a large global food company, you know, it's going through some very painful uh, disruptions in their industry, having to sort of fight and dig deep to find new, new forms of relevance, um, had to face some hard headwinds, uh, but did it with grace and did it with commitment uh, and now are thriving. Mm, beautiful. And, you know, Ron, part of this is also you're a leader. And I think there's a, we talked a little bit at the beginning around vulnerability. And so when you think about for yourself and your leadership journey um, and understanding your strengths and your gaps, what have you noticed have been some of the things that you've struggled with as a leader? Not necessarily now, things you've grown and, and learned on the journey. Oh, or if you, I'm sure if you ask my firm, they tell you like just 10 minutes ago. <laughs> um, so five, so, you know, five years ago in Full disclosure, I hired a coach for me. I decided I need to take my own medicine, so I hired a coach. Uh, I was feeling a little bit wayward in my own career, feeling like I'm, I wasn't quite sure where I wanted these next years of my life to go, and I wasn't quite sure how to get there, and uh, felt a little bit like a fraud, was frustrated with some, some lack of progress. And so um, I, I'm like, okay, I need to submit myself to what, what I ask my clients to submit to me. Um, and it was, it was, uh, I, and I, I still talk to her. She was amazing. I still talk regularly with her, but I, but I used her regularly for five years yeah. and it was a lot of work. And it turns out that I, you know, I probably had gone uncalibrated too long with respect to how I managed my presence in the world and my career. And some of the wild assumptions that I had a, about how to go about being influential in the world that were just gross and true and misguided. And so having to unlearn a lot of things and still having to unlearn a lot of things while learning new things uh, in terms of how I want to impact the world and how, how I want to steward my own fingerprint uh, in my field. Um, and I'd say even after five years of hard, hard work, I'm barely getting the hang of it. Like I'm, you know, I'm, I know things now I didn't know then about me and my work, but I by no means feel like I've arrived anywhere. Um, so, you know, I think, uh, the hard part is, you know, the journey's long, you know, you, you don't, you're not the, the, it, this is not like baking a complex souffle. If you follow the instructions, it won't fall in. It's not like that, right? It's personal change and personal growth is messy, difficult, iterative, you know, bumpy, and you have to be willing to withstand that. And, and the, the, you know, there's a committee in your head meeting all the time, trying to convince, you know, they're fighting among themselves, trying to convince you of why you're going to fail and why it's not worth it and why you're a fraud. And we're all fighting those committees and all, you know, trying to chair those meetings and trying to get them under control and get the committee aligned around 
we want to be and where we want to go. And so, you know, being honest about my own mental health and being honest about what it means to, you know, tap dance among those voices um, and still show up to my clients and show up to my firm and show up to my friends uh, in full form, uh, even when full form is not that great. So it's, uh, yeah, the, the journey of our own, our own formation um, and multiple formations, which is what transformation is, um, is our first frontier, right? It's the, you know, if you can't master that frontier, you probably shouldn't be in the business of helping anybody else. Thank you for sharing that vulnerably, because I think um, if you're ready to go on that, that I don't even know if you're ever ready, but to go on that coaching journey <laughs> is about recognizing it's going to be really uncomfortable, but you're willing to be through in that discomfort and be with somebody who's really championing you along the way and wanting what's best for you. That's their only agenda. And, you know, for myself, and in, in terms of the work that I do with coaching, I find it incredibly rewarding to be on that journey with people. Um, what have you noticed in terms of your work with doing um, executive leadership coaching? Uh, what do you find most fulfilling in that kind of work? Well, it's a privilege, right? I mean, I'm sitting next to leaders who will turn around and face hundreds, if not thousands of employees that they lead when they're done. And I know that through my work, I'm influencing all those people. So there's an incredible humbling privilege about what I do. And I don't ever take that for granted. Um, when a leader, you know, who, I mean, these are already accomplished people. These are not, these are really brilliant, smart, well-achieved women and men who didn't get there by luck. Um, and though they're flawed, um, getting to help people go from great to greater uh, and and amplify their voice and their impact in the world. I mean, what a thrill, you know, to know that after, you know, multiple months or even years of a relationship, you can look back and they will, they come and tell you, here's what I've been able to do that I wouldn't have, have had I not met you. Um, I mean, you have to really keep your ego in check, but you, but what a privilege to enjoy, you know, to get up every day, knowing that I get to leave the world better than I found it through the work, through the work of others. Mm. Yes, yes, that's such a beautiful summary of that work. And, and what do you think, um, you know, sometimes organizations support the leaders and have executive coaching available to them, but sometimes it's also the leader doing that for themselves. What do you think can be a barrier to, to leaders getting help in that way and, and working with an executive coach? You know, I think, I think the stigma of coaching is remedial is, is wearing off. I think, um, used to be that you were the last ditch effort. Now coach people, I think people understand coaching is for winners. Coaching is for the, the, the you know, it's now, unfortunately co companies have made it too much of a privilege, right? And, and so it's just reserved for, unfortunately for too few. Um, I think there's a couple of, one is, you know, who's going to pay for it. Um, and two, uh, sadly, the, the field has proliferated like a bad rash. I mean, it's, you have everybody, their mother and their aunt going to JCPenney's and Costco and getting certified to be a coach. Um, and so you have this dangerous variance in quality of work. And anybody that can hang your shingle out, they can all use the same words on their websites. And, you know, whenever I walk into an executive and I, and, and I know I'm being compared to somebody who got a paper certification, to, to, you know, three years ago, and is cost one tenth what I cost, and he's shopping on price, or she's shopping on price. I'm like, I, I don't even know how to explain, you know, this. Um, um, but like, if you have open heart surgery, and you need a stent put in. Do you want the person who read the book on stents, or do you want the person who's put twenty thousand in? 
uh, you know, get what you pay for. Um, but I think many people are naive in what, what it means to even choose a coach. And, yeah, and you have some folks that are still in that sense of, is it okay to ask for help? Is it, you know, they, they, their own self-confidence is so uh, wavered that the notion of submitting to somebody else's expertise feels like an admission of inadequacy. Um, and in some ways, impartially it is, but it's not total inadequacy, right? It takes tremendous courage to sort of face your flaws and your fears. Um, but for many leaders, that can be overwhelming. Mm. I mean, if they have a history of de deep-seated senses of inadequacy or, um, or uh, s imposter syndrome, um, the exposure of that can feel very threatening. And then, well, I'd be able to function in my job. If I'm, if I'm feeling dissected or deconstructed to that degree, what will happen when I go to work? Mm. Mm. And sometimes I even think as you're talking about it right now, Ron, it can also even just be the fear of the unknown. Like they don't even know what it is. They have this buildup of the story of what it's going to look like. And yeah. sometimes it can be a, obviously a lot different than what the journey is actually going to look like. Yeah. Um, what do you think the answer is when you think about leadership development and, and you alluded a little bit to it right there in that sometimes there's the the investments are certain areas of the organization and I think it's actually to their disservice because anybody going into a leadership position, whether that's entry level and as they work their way up. Um, I think a lot of leaders go from individual contributors into leadership and they're not well equipped to for the job they signed up for. And so if you could wave a magic wand, um, what would you like to see more of in organizations in terms of their way of better supporting leaders on that leadership journey? Uh, you know, for the billions and billions of dollars that we spend on leadership development every year, the, the lack of ROI, you can't blame them for wanting to be, you know, it's because they're, they're, they're still taking very programmatic you know, one size fits all, sheep dipping, put them in a five day workshop kinds of approaches. We're taking people out of their context and dipping them into content, um, which is backwards, right? We need to take the content into their context and go to them uh, and make the, the, use the work as a transformation mechanism, not the content. Um, so we have to just reverse the paradigm. And then you know what? Get a decently qualified coach for every leader in your company. Why not? It's probably cheaper than what you're spending now, and you'll get more ROI. Just anybody who gets to lead should have help. And the notion that they don't need that help is foolish. Um, and of course, the higher up you go, the, you know, the less, you, I mean, you assume that they need to help less, they need to help more. And yes, you should, you should pay more for it. You're entrusting these people with hundreds, and if not millions, if not billions of dollars of revenue and shareholder growth. It's an insurance policy. Put, a hundred, put another hundred grand on the table and make sure that they, for the next year they succeed. Why would, you, I mean, it's a rounding error when it comes to that investment. And it just boggles the mind how companies don't see that. Well, and that's why I wanted to hear your insight on that because I say this all the time, like it, they'd be fine spending like a million dollars on the advertising or marketing dollars, but not putting <laughs> a small fraction of that on the people who without those right people who are all putting together, it doesn't matter what happens with those advertising dollars over there. Yep. Yep. Mm. Um, 
I think, uh, Ron, I'd be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that we're currently dealing with a global pandemic. Um, this is a global show, but for people in North America, um, especially, um, I'm in Canada, but I feel like I've just been, I've been just as impact by what's been going on with the politics in the U.S. There's been a lot going on around um, diversity, equity, inclusion, and really addressing some of the racism that's happening. Um, so from your perspective, um, how do you think that's impacting leaders and what do we need to be conscious of in terms of supporting um, our leaders as they're working through, you know, a lot of mental, um, physical exhaustion that's, that's going on right now? Yeah, well, so, so the first thing is we've got to teach people what self-care really is. Um, I have one client, as an example, when they came to realize that people were just, you know, working more hours at home is now everybody is required every 10 days to take a day off. Oh, they, they cannot be seen online. They can't respond to any emails. Um, they're being forced to because they just know that people are not caring for themselves. Um, you have to replace your commute with something else, you know, and you have to. So and everybody knows this, Kristen. You have to take care of your fitness, take care of your nutrition, take care of your family, um, you know, take care of your soul. Um, and I think, I don't think, the pandemic caused the need for that, it revealed it. We've always needed those things, but now our lack of them is being stress tested in ways it never has before. And we've got to meet the, we've just got to force ourselves to do, and it doesn't mean just pampering. Pampering is certainly nice, um, but the, you can't go to the spa and get a massage now. So, you know, you have to do other things, but you've got to, You've got to turn your brain off. It's it's no different than if you take your cell phone out into the woods where there's no cell tower and you just watch the battery drain, right? That's what we're doing to our frontal lobes. When we're sitting in front of a screen for nine hours, you're just taking your frontal lobe and just draining the battery. Yeah. Um, and you and then we're all working at 20% capacity in our battery. And that means your your self-regulation is not there. Your ability to respond to stress is not there. And you're gonna get, your nerves are going to be you're going to snap all you're going to it's just not a healthy place and we've got to take it seriously we've just got to take it seriously thank you for saying that because that's been my mission over the last eight months with all of the leaders that i've been speaking with and 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 i like what you where you went there too this isn't about the pampering piece it's around really creating space to be able to be taking care of themselves and recognizing how important it is to nourish our body mind body spirit um, because a hundred percent, there's no way you're showing up to work the same way. If you've had four hours of sleep, as opposed to eight hours of sleep or nine right. hours of sleep, if you're getting some physical fitness, as opposed to having two or three glasses of wine every night, there's no way you're showing up to everything that's going to show up in the same way. So, um, I've really been encouraging that and I'm talking a lot about that battery piece, like the car can't go if there's nothing in the battery, right? It just, it can't move. And, and eventually it's just not sustainable. And, and I also have been and trying to help more organizations to take responsibility as well, because I have seen some workplaces that are just operating business as usual, same expectations, back-to-back -back Zoom meetings. And then the executives, of course, can't be getting their work done with the back-to-back -back meetings. So they're having right. dinner and staying up till two o'clock in the morning every night doing work to try to catch up. That's not, that's not, we shouldn't be asking that of our people. That's not sustainable. Right. right. Very true. 
Um, as we start to finish off this organ, this, this conversation, which is always hard for me because I, I wanted to, I know we could talk about so much more, Ron, um, but I really would love to give you an opportunity to, to leave your final thought with the audience. What's coming up for you as a final thought? If you doubt that your leadership um, is differential in your world, get past that. If you're leading other people, if there are people who, whose development, whose careers, whose work you are accountable for, that's a multiplicative impact uh, you have on the world. Don't take it for granted. You know, if you lead five people or eight people or if you lead thousands of people, um, steward that privilege well. Uh, make sure that as you think about your day, you know, have I left them better than I found them? Have I, have I created space for their voices to get stronger? Have I created uh, opportunity for them to advance their own um, giftedness? Have I, uh, have I created a safe space for them to explore their own flaws? Um, really understand that you are there in the service of their transformation. And in turn, they will be there in the service of yours. Don't just think of yourself as the boss with a team. Um, understand that you are so much more than that. And when you understand that, you will become that. Mm. Wise, wise words. Um, I'm going to have all your information in the show notes, Ron, but where can people learn more about you? Come visit us. So uh, we have a brand new website that's sharp, full of great resources at navalent.com, N-A-V-A-L-E-N-T. We have great videos. We have a, a brand new ebook called Designing Your Virtual Workplace. For those who are struggling with this hybrid model, come download that at navalent.com slash virtual. If you are leading transformation in your world in some form, we've got a great playbook on that uh, called Leading Transformations. And it's a, another ebook at navalent.com slash transformation. Please follow me on LinkedIn and please follow me on Twitter. Wonderful. And like I said, everyone listening, we'll have this in the show notes. Ron, thank you so much for being here today. It's a pleasure, Chris, and thanks for having me. And for everybody listening along, please go to the website and uh, write your comments. Uh, would love for you to let other people know about the podcast. This podcast has really grown through uh, word of mouth and always love to hear from the audience and, and what's really has been the biggest takeaways from you. And also what are topics that you really want to hear about as a leader? Thanks so much, everyone. Take care.